Hello there, the good, the bad, and the what listeners. Just a heads up, the episode you're about to hear today was initially recorded live for the North Bend Film Festival. We do have it available to watch on YouTube for you if you want to check that out. It was initially intended for a visual format. We do believe that if you're commuting and you're listening to it that way, that it will play just fine in audio format, but just if you have the option and you want to view the video, we will include the YouTube link in our show notes. Other than that, please enjoy the show. And we are your hosts for today's broadcast, following top news stories of the day. Good, great, grand, wonderful. I have a bad feeling about this. What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? It's the good, the bad, and the what? Lost your train of thought, didn't I? <laughs> Hello, North Bend Film Festival. Welcome to a very special episode of The Good, The Bad, and The What, the show in which we dissect what makes a movie good, bad, or other within a certain theme, category, subgenre, or filmography. I'm Ryan Oliver. And I'm Chris Thomas. Chris, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm very excited. We're, we're very grateful, very honored that for the North Bend Film Festival to be having us. Um, if you are new to, a sh- to this show, welcome. Um, just a little bit of elaboration on our shtick before we get started proper. Um, as I mentioned at the top, we pick a certain theme, we pick a category, we pick a filmography, whatever the case may be, and we talk about what makes a movie good in it, what makes a movie bad in it, and what makes a movie other or what within it. Um, So because we are here at the North Bend Film Festival, the premier Vanguard Film Festival of the Pacific Northwest, today we're going to be looking at Vanguard sci-fi horror dramas from the late 90s and the early 2000s that have uh, some sort of element of either time travel, time bending, um, whatever you want to call it, they have elements of that. And on a traditional episode, on our normal episode, uh, Chris and I swap taking uh picks we we trade off picking movies each week but for this special occasion we put our heads together and came up with these ourselves so i will introduce the picks and we will just get into it for the good in honor of its 20th anniversary here at north bend film festival we will be talking about donnie darko from 2001 directed by richard kelly for the bad we will be talking about the butterfly effect from 2004 uh, directed by eric bress and jay mackie gruber and for the what we'll be talking about lost highway from 1997 directed by david lynch arguably one of his more polarizing efforts so uh looking forward to diving into that but we're going to start um as always we usually start with the good and then we move to the bad and then we move to the what and so we're going to start with donnie darko and Chris, I want to kick it over to you because you um, we've had different relationships with this movie uh, since since 2001. So I, I want to hear more about yours because I know uh, this this uh, is a very was a very special movie to you at, at least one point in time. And looking forward to seeing if that is still the case. Um, I mean, I, sort of the case, but for very different reasons. I mean, when I first saw Donnie Darko, uh, I saw it like 2004, 2005. So I'm like just entering high school. 
Um, so of course, uh, uh, I, I guess you could have described me as a bit of an edge lord and brooding. Um, so then I saw a bit of myself reflected in Donnie being sort of a darker uh, counterculture, uh, you know, fighting, you know, authority figures sort of attitude that he had, um, and sort of like his edgy know-it-allness of uh, always having the right thing to say, sort of the arguments that you would have with yourself uh, in the shower where you always come out on top, but of course those don't happen in, in reality. Um, so then I sort of, you know, um, liked that about the character. And then, you know, the overall aesthetic, it's really fun. The sci-fi elements are uh, really well done and, and great. And I'm specifically talking about the theatrical version. That's the one that I was introduced to and the one that I fell in love with and the, the director's cut spells those elements out a bit more. And I think we'll get into a bit of a comparison between the two, but um, the theatrical version by keeping those things ambiguous, uh, there's a lot of intrigue, a lot of mystery. So there was a lot of elements and stuff that I um, you know, sort of fell in love with when I was in that headspace in my adolescence that now going back and revisiting it, which I hadn't really revisited it since high school. Um, there's a lot more that I've sort of picked up on and, and respected and, and really liked about the movie. Um, not so much, you know, there was definitely some things that um, I thought were really cool when I was 14 that now I'm a little bit like, like I don't really relate to that anymore. Uh, so it doesn't really work for me in the same way, but I think um, it stands on its own legs just in a very different moment in my life. And so I, I think it's still largely mm -hmm. successful. Absolutely, and I think that's a, a, something I wanna piggyback off of because I felt similarly in terms of picking up on things that I definitely didn't when I was younger. Um, my relationship's a bit, uh, different with the movie I, I didn't watch it I think probably till like 2008 or 9 I want to say so like right as I was about exiting high school getting into college and was like really starting to like get into film and and uh, I guess maybe that was a couple years prior but either way like I was starting to get into movies and so I think when I watched Donnie Darko just given that it you know of course it's like a, a cult you know a definitive cult movie like it, it absolutely um is that and so I think when I first saw it I just didn't really have the sort of um um I don't know like the relatability to those things that you were talking about like I, I just I just didn't quite relate to those and nor did I have the sort of like knowledge to pick up on everything else going in the background so it, it's a movie that I was like okay like I, I liked it because I like a lot of the performances that are great I, I like the vibe of the movie which we'll dive into more but I, I I just it never really connected with me the way that it did with you when you were younger and it did with with a lot of people um uh, you know of course and so watching it as an adult it's like I I, I almost feel a little stupid uh, that I didn't pick up on these things because they're so overtly there. And 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 what I ultimately latched onto this time out, I think this is gonna be the meat of our discussion, is how this movie is like the antithesis of 80s nostalgia. Mm -hmm. um, like even on the back of the box, I actually have it here, this, this fantastic uh, 4K that Arrow Video put out recently. Um, it, like it is it is a beautiful beautiful transfer the best i think this movie has ever ever looked um but on the back of the box it even said like 15 years before stranger things incorporated like 80s nostalgia and uh spielbergian touches and, and something like that and as i was watching this again i was like 
but this is kind of like the the anti version of that because i think this movie largely is what richard kelly is saying is like the 80s actually kind of suck and uh the sort of like hooks that were dug in by reaganomics is like you know largely looming in this movie and largely looming to this day and and you know of course prescient that this came out during uh george w bush's first term in office um you know, we see the scene later, like early in the movie when her uh, Donnie's father is watching a presidential debate uh, mm-hmm. between Dukakis and uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. And he's like States bitching about sure Dukakis. never again do business yeah. with a drug running Panamanian dictator that we never again Dukakis. funnel aid to the countries who convicted drug dealers. Son of a bitch. Pan- so it's like those sort of like, you know, the face of like contemporary conservatism is like Doug, it's dug its claws so deep even to like donnie's parents which are like you know in this like idyllic leave it to beaver type town his parents are very like hip to kind of the bullshit that's going on in their community but even then they have these views that like i I, like are completely diametrically opposed to donnie's um Mm -hmm. so that's the stuff i really picked up this time out and i was like oh this is actually really like I I feel like an astute criticism of that and using the sort of 80s nostalgia as like a juxtaposition. It's not like saying, hey, do you remember Echo and the Bunnyman and Tears for Fears? Um, Admittedly, some fantastic needle drops. Um, But it's not saying, do you remember these? It's like using it as like a shield of saying like, okay, yeah, you remember this time, but here's all the time, the stuff that kind of sucked about this era that you probably Mm -hmm. weren't thinking about. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, a lot of the problems that, I mean, not the supernatural elements, we'll get into those a, a bit itself, but a lot of the problems uh, that Donnie is experiencing, like I said, when I was younger, are relatable and are sort of timeless of like, you know, not getting along with classmates because you're the weird kid or not getting along with your family and butting heads with authority figures uh, is, I mean, counterculturalism has always been around to some extent. Yeah. Um, and but it, you're right that it doesn't make sense to me at least when you read that back of that box to make a direct comparison of Donnie Darko to Stranger Things uh, are two very very vastly different uh, buckets they they both happen in the 80s but of course like Stranger Things is very much just dripping with nostalgia and mm-hmm. Donnie Darko is not it, it's just a movie that happens to be set in that time and yeah it has needle drops and a lot of the songs are, are great but like you're saying a lot of the stuff that it's comparatively pulling from the era is stuff like the the specter of ronald reagan and reagan's reaganomics um and what it had did to culture sort of this um big brother-esque sort of uh, uh authority figures thinking that they know what's best for uh the kids of the time and so then they will enact laws and they will make decisions as we're getting into the era of parental advisory on uh on cds and albums that say the word fuck well we can't have our kids knowing that bad words exist we're going to make those decisions for them and we're seeing that sort of leaking into the lessons that teachers are, are teaching in school and that was very much an 80s thing of, of uh adolescents basically being under attack by a generation of people that thought that they knew better and so then we get to make those decisions and so uh i it, it's really refreshing because of course at the time that this movie came out there really wasn't this big 80s, uh, everything that's that all the time is just like, I mean, it's in video games and stuff now. Yeah. Like just, oh, you remember like flashy colors and and oh, Rambo is in things now. And, and that wasn't the case uh, when this movie came out. And so it's kind of refreshing to go back before that deluge into pop culture started happening and being like, look at somebody taking 
a, a realistic, uh, real overview look at this era and criticizing it. It yeah. was really nice to watch. Agreed. Going back, because like as as early as I can think of, maybe it happened earlier. The 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 sort of like maybe pinpoint of the ushering in of this eighties nostalgia might be something like the Wedding Singer, um, which which yeah. came out three years before this. So only three years separates something like that versus this. So like early on, Richard Kelly was already taking a critical lens to what was already starting to bubble, which was this like you know this sort of reverence for a period that again like you know sure the things in popular culture people remember and love but people tend to forget um of all the other shady shits happening in the background as as evident by like you said the the authority figures who think they know what's best um which is like i love that this movie so like just takes them down a peg or two i mean you know specifically in like the uh what is it the pta meeting when Mm -hmm. they're talking about the banning books and even donnie's parents are like what exactly are you getting at? Like, can right. we move on? This isn't on the agenda. Let's actually do the thing. Or, you know, in the case of, of course, Patrick Swayze's character, the uh, Jim Cunningham, the, the like, you know, BS, like self-help guru who's got yeah. more than a few horrible, horrible secrets. And so it's like that whole, that whole like dynamic of just like hiding underneath this guise of like, because it kind of opened the door of like, uh, of like, this era really opened the door to those people, made those people feel empowered. And, and mm-hmm. again, I think we're still feeling that today of like authority figures who think that they're better or they're acting in a way because in it's some sort of self-righteousness, especially like that that mother character I'm referring to, because it's like, it's a lot of like religious aspects. And like, we see mm-hmm. that in like contemporary Christianity of people like acting uh, like because it's above you so they're like acting like it's, it's uh and and it's just like, it's, it's a load of crap. And so like, I, I Again, it was refreshing to see this, as you said. Refreshing is the word to see this, like really pointed out. Well, and she's she's very much like a Stephen King esque character of yeah. coming in, yep. and, and I'm the ultimate authority figure. I will call the shots here and shout down anybody who questions me. But I the 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 parent teacher meeting being one uh, example of it, but like in Swayze's character, uh, just this ultimate hypocrisy of these people who are ultimately flawed, acting as if they are just the messengers of what is good and what is righteous and calling it out blatantly especially in that scene uh, at the pta meeting where they uh donnie's mom is like do you even know who graham green is yeah and uh <laughs> i think we've all seen bananas which yeah. is uh just calling out that like how can you speak with authority on a subject that you yourself are admittedly ignorant of and yes. I, I, I it's it's nice to sort of call that out it's it's, it's an issue that persists there's still people who will go out and lord and say like, you know, it, you people can't make these decisions with their life and, and whatnot. I, I feel like it was really in the 80s when media started to explode, which is why we see so much of it now in pop culture is that there was an abundance of content that came out of the 80s that, you know, commercial TV shows and everything like that, uh, that sort of informed the era. So there's ample things to, to pull from. Uh, in, in in modern media, and I think that sort of era started to bring these people out of the woodwork because they were now handed a megaphone. Whereas once it used to be, you know, they police their communities, but now they're on television. They can police their state. They can police the the world, or at mm-hmm. least attempt to. Uh, and uh, self help gurus blew up in the eighties as well. Um, yeah. And uh, a lot calling out the hypocrisy when they're at the uh, the meeting where. Uh, Cunningham goes to their school and has his own chat with the kids and is telling them 
uh, all emotion is just boiled down to either love or it's fear. And uh, give me these scenarios and I'll just give you some bullshit answer, which uh, I love that in fact, in that scene, they montage it. They don't let him do his spiel because yeah. ultimately it doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's all the posturing anyway. Um, exemplified by the fact that one of the kids that's in that scene appears in the, the self-help Cunningham video. Yes. Um, so he's like an audience <laughs> plant uh, that's there to ask the, the pre-canned video that he has an answer for. And then just Donnie going up there and just being like, um, how much are they paying you to be here? Uh, excuse me? I believe you were searching for the answers in all the wrong places. You're right, actually. I am pretty, I'm, I'm pretty troubled and I'm, I'm pretty confused, but I, and I'm afraid, really, really afraid. Really afraid, but I, I, I think you're fucking antichrist. And, yeah. and just coming back with sensible answers of just like, you don't have to get your answers from the book, just fucking live your life. And then you will naturally come to the same conclusions that people have for eons and generations. Like it's not up to this guy to tell you how to make decisions and live your life. Um, which I think is the sort of stuff that sort of resonated with me a bit more as I understand it a bit more. It's not just yeah. surface level, like, yeah, get him Donnie. It's just like, yeah, it's a cultural problem. I'm glad you're yeah, I, I feel the same way because I I felt, you know, mentioning when I was younger, like I never really connected to that sort of like la like the lashing out aspect. But like now seeing it as an adult, it's like, oh, this isn't like lashing out. I mean, it sort of is, um, you know, it's like because he's got like the, you know, teenage angst going on with mm -hmm. it, but it's lashing out for a purpose and lashing out with an actual like critical point of view. Um, and, you know, I mean, he's essentially he's essentially Richard Kelly in this situation. Like he's the, the vessel to get the ideas across in the movie. Sure. Um, and, and I mean, he does it in a way that like, isn't like didactic or talking down. Like it actually like fits the, the sort of situation. And like you said, this was the era of, you already pointed it out, the parental advisory sticker. This was the Tipper Gore like era, like crackdown. And like, of course, MPAA getting like super strict about things, um, you know, not to get tangential uh, for our new listeners, but I know you and I are big like Friday the 13th fans and yep. how like those later movies got like edited to shreds because Watch they it. were, yeah, because they're like, they're too violent and we can't have these out. Um, and there's that, I, I mean, I, I have to point out, I mean, I think maybe one of the standout sequences, there are many in this movie, is to show that juxtaposition that I love is, is the, the Tears for Fears uh, montage, uh, getting off the bus, and like the tracking shot that goes through of like, okay, here's like your school where everyone's required to wear uniforms. Like it's that mm -hmm. type of like sort of dis disciplinary, like you're gonna live by this rule. But then it's like the kids are snorting Coke out of their locker <laughs> and like doing all these other things. And it's like, I love that sort of like, no, like they're gonna do what they're gonna do. And actually you're probably pushing that further the other direction by blatantly, you know, like, um exploiting your own authority right yeah everybody has to fit into this box but like that's that's not how the world works yeah. um but but then i also love like that this is sort of like the overarching theme that's going on in the movie that they're exploring but instead of it just being that surface level of donnie's a kid in this um this world and, and these are the things that he you know runs into and has to deal with in, in terms of conflicts but introducing it in the way of this like supernatural sci-fi element, which I think like we can't talk about Donnie Darko, not get into sort yeah. of those elements that make it work. Um, 
And, and of course, mentioning, uh, you already showed the, the case of the movie mentioning Frank, who is a very important character uh, in sort of the entire overall story. So I, so we're already into spoilers, so sorry, uh, but you know we're going to get into even more. But just the, the idea of the, the movie itself, Donnie is a troubled kid. He's not getting along with anybody. He's sleepwalking. Um, he has to take medication. He's recently stopped taking medication, according to an argument that he has with his sister over dinner. Do you want to tell mom and dad why you stopped taking your medication? You're such a fuck ass. What? Please. Did you just call me a fuck ass? Elizabeth, that's enough. You can go suck a fuck. Oh, please tell me, Elizabeth, how exactly does one suck a fuck? Um, so we know that he's sort of struggling with his own identity, which is not a, a strange thing for a kid to have to go through. Um, but what is strange for a kid is that uh, one night he wakes up um, uh, to a voice who beckons him to leave his bedroom. He goes to a green uh, on a golf course nearby where there is a man in a terrifying looking bunny suit who tells him that the world is going to end in 28 days and doesn't explain any further than that. Um, coincidentally, or not coincidentally, uh, he, avoids being crushed by a, uh, I, I guess, just a, a, an errant uh, a plane engine that falls through the roof of the house and destroys his bedroom. Um, after that, things get really weird herky-jerky uh, of uh, interactions with Frank and, and trying to understand what's real. And it's very dreamlike. Um, but I, I love that they there's no real point where they sit down and they go, okay, here's the rules. Here's where... Right. Frank shows up or why Frank is showing up. What is Frank? Um, they they don't sit and, and spoon feed you those things. They introduce the elements and let them sort of as organically as they can for it being a man in a bunny suit uh, come up at, at beats in the story that drive it forward and, and cause Donnie to make decisions or take actions that are out of the ordinary, but ultimately end up revealing something um, dark or twisted or something that's in the underbelly of this tight knit leave it to be it leave it to beaver community that he's in. Yeah, and, and all of that stuff is very like um, you know, like you said, it's all purposeful. Like it, it, it's one of those things where um, you know, it, it is a bit like throughout it's like a bit ambiguous, it's a bit dream logic, it's a bit like that. And what I also like really appreciated this time out um you know to piggyback off what you said there as well as like how it ties in like how mm -hmm. it ties into the whole like leave it to beaver aspect of the movie and how it like informs his decisions throughout the movie it isn't just you know like we're, we're, the first time i saw this i think i was led to believe that he was being manipulated by frank in a lot of these situations and in, and in ways he is mm -hmm. but like watching it this time out like realizing that it's like oh no he's the the society is informing his decisions like he's he's informing his decisions based on what he knows he has complete autonomy over this and especially as we see by the end of the movie um which you know you succinctly put it you know again if you are new to this show welcome uh but because we talk about older movies we do get into spoilers up front um so so just be forewarned but by the end he has to make like an, an ultimate choice and it isn't like by force like he's not forced to make it like nobody's forcing him to do it and he doesn't even really quite understand the nature of what that is going to lead to he just knows that it will do at least this one thing and so mm -hmm. he he has to make that choice well and i the ambiguity of it where 
is because so the, there's a time travel element that's in here mm -hmm. and it's not overt uh like i if you were to ask like about a category of time travel movies i don't think donnie darko would be one that i would put up there uh yeah. in that list like it's not a back to the future it's not primer it's not something where uh, the time travel is, is absolutely like integral to the story and to the plot. Like it's very important, um, but a lot of it is, is like implied and it's sort of happening in the background and it becomes plot beats and plot points, but it's not the driving force. The driving force is Donnie pushing back against this, this world that doesn't understand him and is trying to put him in a box. And so the stuff that happens with Frank, where Frank shows up and of course, like leads him out of his room, he avoids getting crushed by the, the jet engine, um, tells him to go uh, uh, put an ax through the water main of the school and floods it, which leads him to meeting uh, Gretchen uh, out in, in the wild. I mean, they've met like in, in class or whatever, but like running into her and they have a bonding moment and they end up, uh, I think at that point he like asks her out. Yeah. Um, and him leading him to the gun and his parents' closet. And so there's like stuff that happens throughout the movie where Frank will come in and push him more or less like to places where he needs to be to make a discovery, uh, which will just inform what he ends up doing later. Or uh, he pushes him to go burn down uh, Swayze's house, uh, which reveals a kitty porn dungeon, the movie's words, not mine. Uh, which exposes again this underbelly, this, this seedy thing that was there under the community's noses, which they end up like pushing back against, which is like a, again just a further step of this hypocr hypocrisy of the community that pushing against uh, immorality and uh, what they deem to be immoral. And then when something that is absolutely heinous gets exposed, they rush to defend it because yes. it reflects poorly upon themselves, uh, which is, I, I mean, I love that. Um, it, and it's just this ultimate hypocrisy that the movie just kind of looms over everything. It's obviously some kind of conspiracy to destroy an innocent man. And I have taken it upon myself to spearhead the Jim Cunningham defense campaign. But then Donnie talking to his professor, uh, uh, his physics professor played by Noah Wiley, uh, and ultimately like getting the book that was written by Roberta Sparrow, who was introduced earlier as a crazed woman walking back and forth from her mailbox looking for mail but she wrote a book about time travel but then uh, speaking strictly about the theatrical version they don't really go into the book very much you just it sort of just plants a seed there of saying there is a time travel element there's something going on in terms of destiny and in terms of you know the the, the actions that i take now are going to have huge ramifications later on we're going to get into that when we talk about the second movie um but it doesn't make it like a central plot beat or, or a story uh, uh, right away at least. And so I, I love that it it's plays with these sci-fi elements, but only to give Johnny and the cast of characters more to work with and more to consider when they're going through the actual core of it, of like what it means to be a person, what it means yes. to be a person that acts in the community, what it means to have friendships and relationships and what does love mean versus hate and fear, uh, which is something that Swayze's character probably could have chewed on a bit more when he wasn't making child porn. Um, yes. I love that they use the sci-fi elements for a more core story that makes the characters and the world more interesting um, mm -hmm. than just really dwelling in those elements. Me too. I think that's, I'm glad you you pointed that out because that's something I wanted to touch on as well of how the element is like integrated into the story. And it's not just a like, um, it's not just for like a Reddit board to figure out and like right. draw like different like, uh flow charts and figure out it's like no it's not it, it's not 
complicated um because the emotional center is there so it's mm-hmm. like it doesn't like this the time travel element sure it's maybe a little complicated um but not again not really like i, right. I feel like it's pretty like followable um everything that's yeah. happening especially when you kind of get to the realization of like frank is an actual person and not a like figment of donnie's imagination or or like a like donnie's not hallucinating these things i guess is what uh because we're we're kind of strung along on a carrot i don't mean to say that because we're dealing with a large rabbit here (laughs) is that like you know the idea at first is like oh he's like actually imagining these things he's got like i mean he has the the famous it's now pretty heavily memed scene with his therapist where it's like i made a friend today real or imaginary imaginary i saw it going around like i made a friend today real or on twitter on twitter um (laughs) (laughs) but but there's that whole element that we're like led to believe that he's imaginary and then you know with the flip gets switched to realize oh he's not like he actually has figured this stuff out as well and he's going back to telling donnie these things um of course accumulating in the sort of like the 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 climax of the movie that it's like oh they're now in the same place and not in like a weird like overlay of time and space they're actually there right yeah right and well it's like it's it's clever in the ways that they try to portray frank as being completely part of his imagination because i mean as far as the audience knows or understands i mean donnie is an unreliable narrator he's Mm -hmm. he's schizophrenic um he takes medication for it uh he's got issues um and it is very like the the psychiatrist had to ask him like it's a very possible you know situation where you would have made up an imaginary friend is that what happened is yeah Yeah. made up an imaginary friend and so um as an audience we don't know i mean we we understand that something is going on that's strange because he saved him from getting crushed and um, he's appearing at times where Donnie can see him, but other people can't see him. It's it, like a, it, when he's in the uh, psychiatrist's office, he's talking to her. He can see Frank and Frank looks at the sky and he has like sort of this thing, but obviously his psychiatrist can't see Frank. And so the fact that it sort of slowly drip feeds this of you don't understand what's real and what's not, it's very dreamlike until sort of the reveal that Frank is somebody who is like friends with his sister uh, mm-hmm. and is an actual guy um and I, I guess we can i don't know if we want to get into the ending but i i don't really want to go over those plot beats if you haven't seen donnie darko you should actually go watch it and enjoy it i don't want to give away sort of the big climax of the movie but it's very satisfying in that it sets up some of these things as we don't know what's in donnie's head or what is a product of you know the real world that he's having to deal with um but it does it, it meshes these things in such a way that it sort of just keeps you intrigued throughout and i think when the ending happens um it's I mean, not much of a twist. I think it's pretty organic in the way that it comes yeah. together. Um, and it's really satisfying. I, I yeah. really enjoyed sort of the way that the movie concludes itself again. Yeah, and it's and it is it's genuinely heartbreaking. Like a movie that has this sort of like really strong sort of satirical edge to it throughout mm-hmm. the movie. Um, it, it would be very easy for this to be you know because you're dealing with a character who is like pretty cynical of the things that are going on it would be really easy for the movie to end in a way that's cynical it ends in irony but it actually ends up in a way that's kind of like emotionally heartbreaking um and you know of course you know it's it's iconic at this point the the cover of mad world that Mm -hmm. (laughs) underscores those final moments of the movie it's just like wow it's it's fantastic (laughs) um yeah so yeah I, i i really I was really happy to rewatch this movie. I was and and it really like kind of like, you know, I, I guess I won't like 
apologize for never like being in like the cult of the movie it's definitely a movie that has plenty of defenders it doesn't need any sort of but like i really understood like the sort of like greatness of the movie uh this time out and really like seeing how um you know how richard kelly like ties everything together and i guess i shouldn't have been so naive to the sort of like politicism of this um you know given given his follow-up movie salvin tales which is like a mm -hmm. complete like sprawling uh, political satire of the like Bush administration, Bush era. So it's like, it's very natural and makes sense. It's like, oh, it's here also. Um, right. I, I personally like it better when it's like a texture bubbling underneath and a vessel for other things. Um, whereas like Southland Tales, like that's the crux of the entire movie. But I, I, I prefer it here, even though I do think that movie's big and ambitious. Um, but I guess uh, maybe a little backstory for people like, uh, you know, of course, it's it's a huge cult movie. It notoriously tanked when it came out. Uh, the, the, the biggest reason for its tank, because it played at Sundance uh, in 2001, had like mm -hmm. great critical response, had great critical response upon its theatrical release. Um, but it was very limited in its marketing because um, they already started the marketing before 9-11. And because a jet engine uh crash is a big crux of this movie they couldn't really retool or re-edit um you know they didn't have i the think money. it was on the posters right i think there was like images of either a plane going down or a part of a plane going down and it was supposed to come out either into september or october of 2001 mm -hmm. and they they uh, and like they they pretty much pan, like pulled all marketing for it so like going into its release there was yeah. like no images anywhere yeah, they recalled, they do, I know they recalled that poster, because the poster we see is the one of, of Frank made out by, like, everyone's uh, uh, profile photo, mm -hmm. um, is the one, but people were like, what, what's this movie about? And then, of course, they barely marketed it. You know, of course, mm -hmm. it's a small movie, they didn't have the budget of, like, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man to go and reshoot elements that maybe incorporated like either that or the twin towers right. in it and like shoot it out of the movie and and of course like drew barrymore's in this movie which we never uh mentioned she's also the producer of this movie she took a pay cut she's a hero yeah for this movie to get made um mm -hmm. richard kelly was famously writing scripts uh after college and this one was sought after but it took a couple years to get financing because he wanted to direct it and people didn't want to give a, a shot to a first-time director um in that way so uh but i'm happy it happened because the movie is it's great and i highly recommend if you haven't seen it it's widely available as i showed earlier arrow videos put out this really excellent 4k transfer of it um definitely go seek it out um though this is the part in the show unfortunately though to to our new listeners this is where we talk about a movie that you probably shouldn't seek out um and this is why we do the bad in the center as well because we get to swing back to a movie that even if it isn't quote unquote good um you know we, we at least it's interesting uh, it's interesting um yeah. and i think we're gonna have a lot to say when we get to lost highway for sure uh what we don't really have a lot to talk about is 2004's butterfly effect which um is a movie that um oh boy like if you google uh movies like donnie darko um did this as an experiment this is the number two movie that shows up in that and and i think for good reason which is like the only thing with good reason i'll say about the butterfly effect is because this movie cribs a ton of elements from donnie darko more than i remembered um this was a movie i was excited to see when it came out um weirdly enough um and i remember like buying it with like either like chore money like lawn mowing money like i went to go buy the dvd of this because i didn't get a chance to see it in the theater and even then at like 14 I was so disappointed in this movie, but as an adult, I was 
infuriated by this movie. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to put the cart before the horse here, but I think like the biggest thing about the butterfly effect is for one, we should we should issue we should do the courtesy that this movie doesn't do and issue a trigger warning to our mm-hmm. listeners because sure. the butterfly effect deals with like really dark disturbing subject matter that it doesn't have the means to do in a delicate way um no. but yes trigger warning the aspects of this movie <laughs> include but are not limited to pedophilia uh infanticide um oh god what else does it deal with like i mean drug addiction drug addiction uh, yes um uh, i mean i guess I, like there's a laundry abuse, list of uh, like uh, yeah like very heavy abuse uh, yeah. uh, uh like animal torture yes animal um, cruelty oh god that seems so horrible like every scenes that are horrible everything is horrible. like mental illness and and just like just real oh. real traumatic shit that like it's it's not stuff that I would say doesn't belong in a movie because I like I don't think that there's in the world of movies in the world of art I don't think anything is off limits I think we should be able to explore and release us out um, everything from from you know the the most surface level of enjoyable things to some really really dark corners I mean it's humanity we're exploring it through expression so you know, nothing should be off limits but of course there are certain subjects that when they are explored, they require some some tact. They require mm-hmm. you to treat it with a, a bit of respect in order to not come off as a fucking asshole. And so when you have the screenwriters of some of the Final Destination movies approaching things like child rape, you're going to run into a situation where like you are not going to approach this with any level of subtlety. Mm-hmm. That is not in your repertoire. So when the movie itself is just a deluge of misery and it is not being handled with a deft hand or a deft eye or anybody who seems to really care, they, it's the point of including it in the movie is to shock you and to assault yes. you and make you feel sick and make you feel awful. So they're like watching a two hour movie just full of shit that makes you feel awful but with no substance there that's going to cause self-reflection or really like grip you and make you think about it. It's just images to uh, upset you. Yeah. And I'm glad you, you beat me to it. Cause that was my big, like among many things about this movie that are wrong and, and, and wrongheaded and misguided is that, um, that the, the directors, Eric, Eric Bress and Jay Mackie Gerber, again, hopefully I'm pronouncing those names correctly. They wrote Final Destination 2, and I think one of them wrote the fourth Final Destination movie. Um, yeah. Now, like, your opinion on those movies are, are may vary. Like, I'm in the minority. I actually don't like the Final Destination movies very much. But even I can admit, like, this, the butterfly effect is basically like a serious Final Destination movie. It, it is approached with that same tact that those movies are, because those movies are very intentional schlock. Like, they're mm-hmm. very, like we know what the audience is here for. We're going to set up like Rube Goldberg-esque like ways in which these characters are going to die and the audience is going to squeal and they're going to enjoy it. And that's based, and people do in that way. Like that is the sort of tact that the Final Destination movies take. When you take that to a movie, that same approach to movies that deal with so many loaded themes as we've discussed, and you apply that same sort of intentional schlock, because this movie is 
really schlocky at times like especially once you get out of the sort of like misery deluge prologue of the movie Mm -hmm. um which i guess maybe we should just lay out the plot a little bit before we kind of like dive in further and hopefully we don't spend a lot of time on this movie (laughs) because it was god no it was it was a rough go uh this time out i mean it was a rough go in 2004 it was even worse now but um Essentially, our lead character, Evan, who's played by Ashton Kutcher, has frequent blackouts that are unexplainable, but tend to happen just before an extremely traumatic event in his life. After an adolescence riddled with tragedy and being responsible for manslaughter, which, oh God, that scene is horrible when they go back to it. Like, that's the infanticide I was talking about, which again, like trigger warning of like the stick of dynamite that blows up a, a mother and her baby. Yeah made me sick i hate i hate this movie so much anyway his mother takes him away from his hometown and the only person he truly cared for kaylee uh played by amy smart 13 years later evan discovers that when he reads his journal entries he's able to travel back in time to alter events potentially creating a better life for himself and kaylee in the process however minor changes have big consequences and pretty quickly evan is risking it all just to go back to a normal life um I mean, that is is more or less the movie. It opens with a quote about chaos theory. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're unfamiliar with the butterfly effect, it's basically that like if you go back in time that even something as small as the flutter of a butterfly's wing can change the course of history. So that's essentially the crux of this movie. And, and like we said, the prologue of this movie when they're kids is just like one of the most like miserablest experiences because mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like a litmus test because right out the gate, it's like, all those loaded themes we were talking about are presented like in youth that like horrible immediately immediately that the horrible like death scene we were talking about the animal cruelty scene which, which is just like horrendous um it's like don't kill a dog as it is like in a movie like it's, yeah it's not good like it's just there to upset people so like when you string that out to make it like torturing a dog yes what why like you have to hate your audience write this movie yes i feel like this movie has really contempt for the audience and then even as a kid it does that thing where i hate in like a bad movie um is where they this the characters go to the movies and they go and they watch seven um Mm -hmm. because of the time and age makes sense and also it's a new line cinema picture so this theater only plays new line cinema movies such as seven and dumb and dumber despite coming out a year apart from one another in no way would they be playing at the same time but i digress but they go and they're watching seven and like and they actually show a clip they're in the theater watching seven and i'm like don't show me the movie that i would rather be watching right now like i hate when a bad movie does that where it's just like hey you remember this really great movie we're sorry like yeah <laughs> here's here's what you're well, about and, to like, watch I've- like not only is it an inappropriate comparison because seven is great uh and this movie is not um and and it like evokes that feeling but like you're you're sort of like degrading your movie by making that comparison um but like i feel like the movie is sort of trying to make the comparison in a positive way of like our movie is dark and edgy and miserable like seven because seven deals with a lot of material that's Mm -hmm. really rough and like hard to get through but it's like thematically it makes sense and it's a satisfying movie and it's a crime drama like so it's it's supposed to have some of these deeper darker things the and the the movie butterfly effects basically feels like somebody sat down with a 
clipboard one day and would just like list off all of the awful, terrible things that could happen to you in your life, like a terrible event. And they just made a bullet list and shot it in bullet order. And like that was like, there was no thought of like, how do we tie these things together thematically? Like, how do we have a through line where there's characters that have arcs and they're learning and growing? Like, because on paper, the idea of I'm going to travel back in time, change something and then deal with the consequences of it sounds fun. You can definitely do that. I mean, hell, Back to the Future 2 did it um, mm -hmm. by making like the alternate reality with like President Biff or like God Emperor Biff, like whatever he was. So like you can definitely do it and make it in a fun way to where your characters are like, oh, look at this terrible world. How do we find our way out of this by going back in time right. and, and changing it and whatnot. But then like by making the point of the movie where things just go from the worst thing imaginable to, oh shit, it could have gotten worse and here we are, is like, there's no levity. There's no point in the movie. And and like Evan's character, I mean, uh, Ashton Kutcher's doing his best with the material that was handed to him. Everybody in the movie is doing the best the material that was handed to him. It's just terrible material. Yes. Um, he's like, he's a non-character. He doesn't really learn or grow or do anything throughout the movie that makes you like, care about him and so then like you're just watching somebody go through the worst day of their life over and over and over and over and it's just like this is so just taxing and tiring and and infuriating at yes. every level yeah absolutely um it it's it really is just a yeah like you said it's a really miserable list experience and, and it's supposed to be like and it's crazy and i don't want i don't want to judge anyone's opinions you know definitely like what you like but i don't know if you've looked like if you go to imdb and you go to rot tomatoes there's a massive gulf between the critical response and the audience response to the movie people like this movie like generally speaking like it was a big hit when it came out uh at least on the scale of which it was made and it's like crazy to me because it it doesn't i i think people romanticize the idea of like the time travel and like doomed sort of fate so like i understand mm -hmm. maybe despite all the subject matter uh, that it's not delicate enough to handle why this would connect with people but to me like you, you said like they bullet pointed almost like they bullet pointed the worst things they could do uh mm -hmm. like they could show in a movie there's that but it also like to tie it back to our previous movie it almost felt like somebody watched donnie darko and like completely missed misunderstood missed the point of it sure. because it because it has that sort of like um it's such a, a crummy word, but we'll just say it like edgy. It has that like ed same mm -hmm. edginess that like Donnie Darko has, but it's superficial. Whereas like, cause Donnie Darko, as we said, like really ties in that into its themes and like articulates it really well. I don't really know what the like greater themes of the butterfly effect are other than just like, okay, watch this person alter the course of history through these sequences of events. And it's like, the, the only thing I really came away like that I could praise really you already mentioned the performances I do think everyone is doing their best and I'll go like one step further when they are finding themselves in different situations throughout time and space the body language of like every actor like changes to fit that like scenario that they're in and the makeup is really well done to show like what people like a lot of thought was put into those details and mm -hmm. I'll give credit to it but like by the end of it i'm like but at what cost <laughs> like it what right. like like purpose was it was it uh done for and 
I, I just, it's, it's just, I, I know I, I hate to keep coming back to that word, but it's just, it's just a miserable experience. Like, um, and, and it's exploitative, like, and, and yes. I say this as someone as a huge fan of exploitation cinema, uh, like that has shown like reprehensible crap on the screen, but like this just does it in a way that I feel like is it's it's tasteless i don't want to say for tastelessness sake but it's just done so in a way that again i I just don't think the filmmakers i i think i think if you put this in the hands like like say say breasts and and gruber wrote this and you put it in the hands of somebody who could actually be delicate with the material i think you have a movie here like honestly i think and you flesh out the characters a bit more you flesh out like uh evan so he's not just like a vessel because that's all he is really it's like Mm -hmm. i I like donnie he's an audience surrogate but not for like like we don't see what his worldview is because we don't see his worldview at least in the whole prologue because he blacks out during every single sequence so right we have it so we don't really know he like him as a character um and so like if you flesh that out you gave it to the hands of a filmmaker who could actually make this like i said i think there's something here but the way it's again it's it's presented exactly like a final destination movie and i don't want my serious like drama presented in in the way in which like a log truck spills out and (laughs) impales people like just give me that moment you know right like uh don't 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 like misconstrue the two and so like and that's the other thing too that also makes this theme seem super exploitative is is it's a plus and a and a huge minus it's a huge minus thematically but like the movie's not stylistically unsound like it's got like a visual style to it like it's a very good looking movie it's a really really well produced movie but it almost makes it worse because it's like so sleek and you're like ugh. but like you're really like glazing over all these things uh but not at the same time and it's just like i'm just really uncomfortable watching watching this movie well and i'm glad that you you made the comparison between evan and donnie as characters both that they are sort of audience surrogates but that they're surrogates for the writer and they 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 even going a bit further they are both um there's a messiah complex to both of these movies right. where the main character is ultimately going to make a sacrifice and um there's a bit more so in the butterfly effect than in Donnie Darko, um, the, because he ultimately ends up being a Deus Ex Machina for the, the Gretchen's story in mm-hmm. Donnie Darko, um, and it's a sacrifice that makes sense for his character to want to make, and it's tragic because he was starting to learn something about loving life and understanding life, but then he gives it up because he was in love with this girl. That's less so the case with Evan, who is sort of an empty shell of a character. He's not we don't again we don't really understand his motivations and his loves and his desires and whatnot he's very surface level but there's still a messiah complex going on and a persecution complex going on like i feel like there's something trying to be worked out here by whoever wrote it um to the point where like the the, his character i I made the the mention earlier about an argument that you have with yourself in the shower that you you win um but like that's not what happens in real life that's how every interaction is sort of written in this movie for evan so like when he goes back in time to being a kid in the basement when there's like the child porn thing going on that was not handled well at all um his lines of like talking to the father are very much written like a that happens post listen close then fuck bag you screw this up again i'll flat out castrate you 
What you need to do is discipline your son, Tommy, because the kid is one sadistic pup. Uh, like, you know, it, if there would have been an audience there, they would have stood up and clapped for the way that he told off this guy. Mm -hmm. And it, and it, and it comes so very much like, um, like copy pasta that you'd see on a message board. It doesn't feel organic. It doesn't feel right. It feels so manufactured yes. that like, a, a, again, like the subject material that you're dealing with here is very serious, but then you're not taking it seriously. Yes. So like as an audience member, I'm stuck in this limbo of like, this feels like a, a cheap a creative writing assignment of a high schooler wrote it, but you're dealing with subject material that makes me deeply, deeply uncomfortable. Yes. So I'm I, like, I don't like either which way we're going here. Yes. <laughs> like, you, I'm glad you brought home. Yes, I'm glad you brought back those flashback sequences or the sequences where he jumps back, reads from his mm -hmm. book, and he goes back to that time as a kid. But he's speaking as he's an adult because he's saying like fuck and all these like swear words over and over again. And it's done so in a way, again, that's like comical. Mm -hmm. And it's like, again, it's unsettling. It's just like bad tone management. It, it, it right. doesn't like what, what are we what supposed to be feeling in this moment? Like, are people supposed to like laugh? because it's not that funny and like you're dealing with like horrendous shit in the movie and it's just like and that through line continues i feel like even outside of the um outside of the like flashback scenes where he goes and reads from the book because it happens even um you know and i'm sure we're going to get it to it because it kind of leads into the ending is like i want to say it's the second to last scenario when he wakes up as a a, a quadriplegic mm -hmm. uh, or a quadruple amputee and like that should be a very like again like serious sad uh, moment, but it's treated with such like schlock that like he wakes up and I think his line is something like "What the shit is this?" Huh? What the fuck is this? Like mm -hmm. he says it like he's Michael Kelso from that '70s show, and yeah. it's like again he's he's trying Ashton Kutcher is, but it's like that specific like line reading it's just like that's it's all wrong for what the right. movie wants to do it's so strange well and like uh, uh that that whole segment is really weird to me i know that mm. the the um the director's cut of the movie goes full full-blown schlock Ooh, um but yeah. at this point in the movie like he's he's changed the past goes forward well i mean so like the entire kickoff of the thing because um, not only are the screenwriters not handling any of the subject material appropriately, Evan himself doesn't handle it appropriately because he has a sort of flashback where he like doesn't know that he can do this. He brings a girl home from the bar and she finds his journals and is like, um, you should read me a passage. And he jumps to a page and starts reading it and has a slow realization that what he's reading is one of the moments where he blacked out when he was about to be like put in like through a traumatic experience where he was in like a child pornography movie he doesn't stop reading it uh for some reason he continues reading the passage to this woman he just brought home from the bar and then it causes him to black out he goes back in time unbeknownst to him at this moment he thinks he's just re reliving it you know in his head mm -hmm. but he goes back in time realizes what's going on that this thing that he forgot and then he flashes forward to, to he's back in the room with that girl and so he goes and finds Elizabeth Smart in this hometown that he had left there like 13 years ago or whatever, working in a diner, like meets her after she gets off shift, does like the pleasantries of like, hey, you know, been a long time, uh, haven't seen you in a while. 
anyway do you remember that one time when we were kids and we were like in a child porn and it's just like you're not yes. gonna like take her home and sit down or like like you're just a fucking truck crashing through a wall in this conversation man like you're blowing the doors off and it's well and it's it's, it's she she, she has the right like she's the only person in in this movie at any moment in that moment who has the absolute right response to something like that she's like she's like this is my life and what i deal with you're like you're gonna come back i haven't seen you for 13 years and you're gonna ask about this like yeah fuck you, you abandon like- me and then you like come <laughs> crashing into my life and go hey you remember that extremely traumatic experience that you had as a kid do you want to like fill me in on the details of what happened then like fuck no she doesn't dude no <laughs> oh my god it's awful and like god bless amy smart man like she she gets like really the short end of the stick in terms of material and what her character mm. has to go through because she literally is just the sort of push for evan's non-character yeah. um because like she has certainly to me i think more of an arc but it's so sidestepped and mm. so it's like she's put in these situations where it's just like okay she's you know she's working at the diner and still lives in this hometown and then okay and now she's in a sorority in this situation but then now she's like a prostitute uh and like i just i just feel so bad and and i want to at least credit her because i think oh, yeah. she absolutely does her all in every sequence and she she gives more than this movie gives back is, is yeah. basically what i want to say um yeah she's the honestly like not evan she's the sympathetic character in this one absolutely. where it's just like and I mean, God, I hate talking about this movie. <laughs> we can get out of it quick. <laughs> uh, we'll we'll pivot. We'll pivot soon. But I mean, I do want to. And I want to get into sort of the crux. I think that shows the studio came in and, and rested away the end of this movie, which is uh, you watched it. You watched the director's cut, and I watched the theatrical cut. And so then, mm-hmm. compare and contrast. I don't think there's really much that goes on in the like the bulk of the movie proper i think really the director's cut is the ending change um mm-hmm. there's even shots it. there's even shots that are the same in the 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 director's cut ending and the theatrical cut okay. ending. so yeah the director's cut was wrestled away which was honestly probably explained its financial success because had the movie ended the way the director's cut ends this would be a f cinema score like tank after the first weekend type movie because it is shockingly tasteless mm-hmm. uh even for this movie like yeah i i am i am, i was aghast watching the director's cut and how this movie ended <laughs> so right. um the theatrical cuts essentially ends with it, it's after the quadruple amputee scenario both movies it's after the quadruple amputee scenario and, and essentially um in that scenario Evan's friends have all like lived a normal life like uh, uh Amy Smart's character and her brother uh their other friend like they they are now like in good spots uh in they're doing well uh Evan isn't um the reason Evan decides to change that scenario is because his mom's doing bad uh doing mm-hmm. poorly she she started chain smoking after Evan became a quadruple amputee and is dying of of lung cancer and so he decides to make that change uh, he ends up in a mental institution in both cuts. In the theatrical cut, he goes back to a scenario of uh, a birthday party um, when they were younger and tells right. Amy Smart's character as a child that like, I, like she, he says like, I fucking hate you. And if you come anywhere near me, I'll kill you. Like just something yeah. horrible like that. Um, yeah. 
you know, kids things. Kids things, right? Yeah. Essentially forces her, um, you know, her and her brother move in with her mom, not their pedophile father. Um, and so they go on and they have a life in, in uh, you know, they go to college. They're like completely doing great. Uh, Evan wakes up in the present. Uh, their other friend is his roommate, his college roommate, instead of Ethan Supley. And uh, he's like, um, um, what about, uh, he's like, where's Kaylee? And he's like, who's Kaylee? Um, so at this point, Evan now has his life. Kaylee and her brother have this life. Uh, Kaylee and Evan share a glance. Uh, at one point, there's like a little bit of ambiguity of whether or not they're going to recognize one another. And then they proceed about. And so that's how that movie ends. Everyone gets, they don't get to be together, but they get to have their lives separately. Um, right. so that's a movie the audience slash onto the director's cuts, which again, trigger warning for all the horrible horrible stuff and i'm not even going to show the worst part when we cut the clips of this because it is just is awful so similarly he's in the mental hospital and tell me in the theatrical cut because he had evan earlier in the movie has dinner with his mom uh Mm -hmm. after upon finishing like or or on the cusp of finishing his phd Mm -hmm. um he does does his mom say that she had three stillborn births before him and that he was like her miracle baby did that happen in the theatrical cut i don't remember that happening in the theatrical cut okay so that was probably a nugget set for the director's cut only oh there's Um, payoff for that oh okay yeah but oh i don't payoff's not the word i would use but (laughs) so in the director's cut there's that they have that exchange and then they go to a psychic and the psychic says like he has no soul and so he needs his mom to get these old eight millimeter videos like from their younger 16 millimeter reels and so he's watching the reel when he's about to be born and he sees that he goes back to his self in the womb and strangles himself because and then that like audio comes in of like you have no soul whatever and then they like i said they use the same clips of like of like Kaylee graduating from high school and like from the theatrical one. So I'm like, I was aghast. Like I said, I could not believe that that was the decision that they made. And again, again, it completely cribs Donnie Darko for one, because Donnie makes that sacrifice, but it's purposeful. Like mm-hmm. this one is just like, this movie's already like misery porn. Like I hate right. that term, but that's pretty much what it is. And then to put an ending like that is like, the most like biggest fuck you that this movie could continue to do it is i i i was i could not believe what i witnessed well and it's the ultimate like edginess because it's like an an angsty 13 year old kid that's like oh the world would be better if i was never born that this is a two-hour movie of explaining that like shitty attitude of like like oh i made the ultimate sacrifice of like making sure i was never born and then everybody else in my life was happier because i was never born and it's like he doesn't he doesn't learn any grand lesson about himself or the world around him or how to be a better person or just treat better like people with more respect he has a time travel ability like it he could just go back and like make less shitty decisions it could be like a a groundhog day scenario of like making a series of, of decisions until you yeah. find the right one and so like it, like there's definitely an ability here for him to do that but that's not what the movie is trying to accomplish the movie is trying to justify suicide ultimately in the director's cut at least and yeah. it's like it's fucked up 
especially with like all the other themes that the movie is tackling that the ultimate solution to all of the terrible shit that you've just slogged through for two hours is to watch a fetus kill itself it's just like i i can't fucking understand how this got like somebody read this and funded this movie i can't believe well i can't even believe that they decided to even release that as a director's cut like i would have swept that under the rug and be like no we're not gonna not gonna show it's embarrassing yeah fucked up exactly it's like it's like i don't know why this came to mind it's like the ending the original ending of mac and me came to mind where the kid gets like blown away and i'm like that's because like they never put that in any release even like the the blu-ray release. they're like just we're gonna sweep it under the rug i probably would have done the same with this ending because it's it's just like awful shouldn't have stopped I, with the ending should have swept the whole movie under the rug yeah i think that's actually a fair point so and that's a probably a good exclamation point to put at the end of this one and i think we should move on to a movie that's much more interesting to talk about um so lost highway from 1997 um Again, if you are new to our show, welcome. Uh, we're so happy to have you. Again, we're so grateful to be here at the North Bend Film Festival. Um, we The what category is a bit of a catch-all. Um, we've talked about different types of like what makes a what. Uh, mm-hmm. In the past, we've talked about movies that are like, have like great ideas, great like nugget of an idea that they didn't quite come to fruition. Uh, we've talked about things like Tron Legacy and Radioactive Dreams in that realm. We've talked about like complete and utter batshit insanity that you have to see to believe. Such movies such as Law Norman, Night Killer, Savage Harbor. So Lost Highway, this is a bit of a different what that we've encountered. And, and admittedly, we, we put it together and we were looking up movies that fit with Donnie Darko and the butterfly effect. We came up with this one. I kind of took a bit of a gamble. I'm not going to lie. And I want to kick it to you to hear your thoughts, because this was a first time watch for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't bury the lead. This is a top three David Lynch movie for me, depending on what day you ask me. It's Mulholland Drive, Twin Peaks, Firewalk with me, and this or Blue Velvet, again, depending on the week. Um, mm-hmm. I adore this movie. But I know it is one of Lynch's most polarizing movies, and I know you've been a bit hot and cold on the David Lynch movies that you have seen. Mm-hmm. So um, I will kick it to you. I kind of gambled a little bit because I didn't know how you were going to feel about this movie. Um, so I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Um, I, I think my feelings on this movie pretty much sum up my feelings on David Lynch himself. I, I have not seen all of David Lynch's stuff. I have not watched... Twin Peaks, uh, so I've not watched Firewalk with me because I feel like I need the context of the show for that. Yeah, but I would say of the David Lynch movies that I've watched, you know, this um, Blue Velvet, uh, Eraserhead, uh, Mulholland Drive, uh, I've enjoyed all of them largely. But upon finishing them, I have like, cool, I enjoyed that. It was a good thing. How do I explain this? How, like, <laughs> how do I even digest it, or how do I feel about it? Because it's very. Lynch's work is all very much dreamlike and and trying to evoke a, a mood or a sense or a feeling. It's not so much a narrative through line. We're not oh, yeah. so much trying to uh, uh, construct a believable world that you can be immersed in. It's very much like we're trying to make you feel uncomfortable or we're trying to make you feel nervous and we'll play with themes in order to evoke emotions. And so like that's, it's very expressionist. It's very out there and strange. So I, it, I enjoyed Lost Highway. But I remember finishing it and being like, how can I tie this into Donnie Darko or, I mean, even worse, the, the butterfly effect? Because they're, they are in some ways very diametrically opposed. But then when we're talking about themes of sacrifice in the world around you and understanding love and humanity, all of those themes are still in there, but presented in a very 
David Lynch way. Yes. And I think that's the other thing too, you know, to know um, for sure, because Donnie Darko and Butterfly Effect almost have a one-to-one because you have a character who can directly uh, do this sort of like time travel, you know, different ways uh, and both involve a book. Like there's almost like identical ways Mm -hmm. to do it. Uh, Lost Highway doesn't, there is, and it's not even necessarily time travel, a little bit. It's almost like parallel universe travel overlapping the world folding in on itself sort of deal um and so i guess to get into it i can start kind of explaining the plot as much as i can the plot is like there's i mean it's it's, yeah i mean it's really just a vessel for like lynch's expressionist feelings and i also feel like to a certain extent this is like the as much as i adore this movie this is kind of like the mulholland drive trial run because it has a sort of dream logic and then when it makes the flip that we're going to talk about like there's like elements from the other one that overlaps mm-hmm. you know Mahal and Drive of course like has these you know because it's largely a dream and then Mahal and Drive takes that flip and you're like oh okay all those things that are happening in actuality get like muddled and like crosswired into this dream scenario right. Lost Highway it's never clear and I'm fine with it um but like that it's like it's never clear if it's like a dream or an alternate universe it's time travel it's just sort of like it, it's it's chaos really mm-hmm. like this movie is is chaos um but I do adore it and we'll we'll start with kind of like explaining it so there's the character of Fred played by Bill Pullman he's like a he's a, a jazz saxophonist mm-hmm. uh um in a typical you know there's his like musical number I think you know typically Angelo Badalamente scored it um, as he scored every David Lynch film. Um, you know, nightclubs very much a part of David Lynch's uh, yeah. movies. So uh, very, very um, his introduction sort of is very Lynchian in that way. Um, he is finding that his wife Renee, played by Patricia Arquette, is is distant. Uh, he suspects that she might be unfaithful. He's starting to get like very protective, uh, especially they go to a party later uh, that's like yeah. uh, helmed by or put on by a porn director. Uh, so he's starting to draw suspicions of like, well, how do you know this guy? Like what, what like things have led to that? Mm-hmm. Um, but they are starting to get weird cryptic signals. Uh, like they starting to get videotapes sent to them that were filmed in their own house. Uh, they're getting like messages uh, ring to their doorbell. Uh, Dick Laurent is dead, uh, which is like the first one that comes into play. Of course, mm-hmm. probably the most important one. Um, things start to really like progress and in a sort of haze after this party sequence, um, Fred runs into this mysterious man played by Robert Blake, uh, scarily prophetic uh, there. Mm-hmm. And um, who, who tells him that like, you know, call your house, I'm in your house right now as we speak um after this encounter uh much like evan in the butterfly effect fred blacks out and next thing he knows he's being in a he's in a police interrogation room uh being pummeled uh because his wife is found dead um so he gets sentenced to death he's on death row um and then all of a sudden wakes up one day and it's not him in that prison cell anymore it's this young pete dayton played by balthazar getty who's sitting there um, who's got a little bit of a rep sheet of his own, but nothing like not not murder in the first degree. Nope. <laughs> so they let him go. Uh, and, in, and in typical David Lynch fashion, there's, uh, you know, the the like detectives or cop figures that are like uh, portrayed for uh, largely dark comedic effect. Um, they have some of the best lines in the movie, or at least one yeah. of the best lines in the movie. Fucker gets more pussy than a toilet seat. Um, 
And so Pete then, uh, he works at a mechanic's office and he is uh, in with this Mr. Eddie, this like seemingly powerful gangster played by Robert Loggia in what is easily the standout performance of this movie. We'll get oh, yeah. into that. Um, but um, he is smitten with, with a woman that uh, Mr. Eddie is seeing named Alice, who's also played by Patricia Arquette. Um, and, and then at this point it becomes uh, like, it, it goes from like Lynchian dream logic, Lynchian underscored, like sound is such an important thing in Lynch's movies. It has that low, like hum, like mm-hmm. dark hum throughout like the, uh, the opening with Bill Pullman's character and, and that whole sequence. But when it takes this shift, it pretty much kind of becomes like conventional neo-noir or not conventional. I've conventional no. is not a word I would use uh, to describe it, but it becomes a very, um, but it becomes more of a neo-noir. Like you have the right. femme fatale uh, that she's got her own sort of motivations for what she's doing. And she finds Pete. Uh, she knows Pete is smitten with her and is using that and using her means to get what she wants. And then I like really once that happens, all the wires get crossed time and space and the continuum doesn't even matter. And it all starts to fold in on itself. So right. it's, um, and I guess maybe that's, that's where, I mean, God, where do we start? There's a lot to unpack with this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was curious to hear your synopsis uh, to remind myself of what I just watched. I, <laughs> because it's it's even weirder than that makes it sound. And, and yes. in, in very Lynchian fashion, the, the scenes have a lot of characters just sort of standing together and not really expressing their thoughts and their feelings or anything in the situation. But like, the, like you were saying, like there's just a droning sound um, just the way that they're looking at each other and their posture um, it sort of like informs you of of their relationship to one another. Because very like early on, between uh, Patricia Arquette and Bill Pullman's character, uh, when they're just in the uh, apartment together, spatially they're very far apart. They don't stand and face each other. They're always sort of looking in different directions, and uh, their, their their conversations are very cold, very uh, hurt. Um, he seems to have almost an underlying rage that's there. Like you, you can, you can sense that there's something there where he is very upset with her, but like we haven't quite been filled in on it yet. And it, all of this is coming across very much through the language of cinema. They're, yes. they're not sitting down and having a conversation. You're gathering all this by just how it's framed and, and like the sound design and the the lighting and so it's there's a lot a lot to love here just from the standpoint of a filmmaker who is honing his craft like you said i think Mulholland drive probably does this uh, a bit better um Mm -hmm. in in some regards but there's a lot to love there just from the simple craft of it um and the performances of the characters uh they're they're not given a lot in terms of dialogue and stuff but there's a lot for them to to chew on and i think everybody in this movie is excellent Everyone is fantastic. I mean, especially Patricia Arquette, given that she is in a dual role and she plays those characters with such different approaches each time. And um, I think like she's absolutely fantastic, but everyone from top to bottom, small or big role, I think is like fantastic in the movie. I like a couple standouts I would point to are Pete's parents played by Gary Busey and Lucy Butler, who are just awesome. Like they're just like these old like biker like family and they're like super understanding of pete like they're they're really sweet like yeah and and like i I, like i love their performances in the movie um 
he's only in a scene or two, but Richard Pryor, um, one of his best dramatic roles outside of Blue Collar, uh, probably a little bit of a nod here to Paul Schrader's Blue Collar because that's set in a a mechanic um, or a a car plant in Detroit. And so he's a mechanic Mm -hmm. here. So I feel like there's a little bit of a hat tip to that. Um, You know, of course, Robert Loggia, which like this, you know, you said like, you know, this, this has all the Lynchian hallmarks. Like it has his soundscape. It has the, um, a terrific Angela Bonalamente score. It has absurdist comedy, um, you know, none more exu- uh, exemplified by Robert Loggia's infamous uh, rant about tailgating. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> Tell him you won't tailgate. Hammer! I won't ever Do you know how many fucking car lengths it takes to stop a car at 35 miles an hour? Six fucking car lengths! That's 106 fucking feet, mister! If I had to stop suddenly, you would have hit me! I want you to get a fucking driver's manual! I want you to study that motherfucker! And I want you to pay the goddamn rules! 50,000 people were killed on the highway last year because of fucking assholes like you. Tell me you're going to get a manual. Get a manual. Fucking Apparently, uh, Robert Loggia, uh, uh, Lynch, uh, and I, I should also note, he co-wrote this movie with uh, Barry Gifford, who wrote the novel Wild at Heart, uh, which Lynch okay. ultimately made. Um, and so they they liked working together on that. And so they collaborated on this original project. Um, I actually, I love Wild at Heart, but I think I actually prefer this movie. Um, and But I'll, I'll, of course, get into like some of the more polarizing aspects to Lynch's already sort of polarizing uh, oeuvre, but apparently Robert Loggia auditioned for the role of Frank Booth uh, that Dennis Hopper played in Blue Velvet. Um, And nobody told him he was auditioning and Hopper was already cast. And so Robert Loggia got there, realized that he had no shot at getting the part and he just ripped in to like Lynch and the casting director, went on a huge like profanity lace tirade. And that always stuck with David Lynch. So when he was writing the role of Mr. Eddie, he was like, Robert Loggia, Robert Loggia is going to play this part. Yeah. My, my best that David Lynch impersonation. <laughs> but, um, but he's fantastic in the movie as well. Oh, yeah. um, even like little things like Henry Rollins plays one of the security guards yeah. who's great. Uh, like they have that like exchange of like, because um, it, it's also like a slow burn in the start. Like this movie just doesn't explode into like that weirdness because um, Bill Pullman's character is like experiencing headaches and nosebleeds. Mm-hmm. And before this like, like there's a lot of like body horror in this movie too like actual like transition into Balthazar Getty's character uh mm-hmm. but one of the prison guards comes back he's like man that wife killer is starting to look really fucked up and he's like which one <laughs> and they just share like a like a dark <laughs> laugh yeah <laughs> like laughing about exactly. it <laughs> the gallows humor of a couple of guards on on death row which I'm feels yeah. appropriate there's a lot of lot of gallows humor in this movie too and i think that's where this comes into play as far as Lynch's most polarizing film, because I think it's the movie that has the least amount of like redemption and the least amount of like emotional core. Um, mm-hmm. Because like, even though his movies of course are, are surrealist and they're drawing on dream logic and 
They are, you know, not like meant to be followed. You know, again, these are not meant for Reddit boards to figure out. Like you're just kind of supposed to roll with it. Mm -hmm. Um, They more or less have like an emotional or at least like a thematic core, you know, of course, blue velvet very much. I mean, I would actually to take it back. I think Donnie Darko is probably indebted a lot to blue velvet of like the sort of like dark underbelly of an idyllic town sort of thing. So like blue velvet has that aspect. And then there's of course the, the romance between Kyle McLaughlin and Laura Dern in that movie. Um, And then of course you feel for Isabella Rossellini in that movie, similarly with wild at heart, like it's, it's a dark violent journey, but the relationship between Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern is like really sound. Mulholland drive has like a, clear through line when it makes that switch twin peaks fire walk with me like laura palmer's fate is arguably lynch's most emotional like purely emotional uh scenes in the movie i love you james But like Lost Highway, again, has all its hallmarks, but it is so dark and there is no redemption in the movie whatever because because Lynch is a romantic, I think, at heart. Like there's a lot of romanticism in his movies and I don't think there's any of that here. I don't think any line exemplifies that further than, and I know we're jumping around a lot, but that's just the nature of this movie. So is Lynch, so it's so, fine. Exactly. <laughs> when, when um, excuse me, when Balthazar Getty's character, when Pete, and uh, Alice have sex out into that like desert where the um, where the like the burning shack is. That's the other mm-hmm. thing. Like Bill Pullman and Balthazar Getty keep seeing this image of this burning shack in the middle of the desert. And so they're having sex in the uh, headlight of the car, and uh, you know just like the that soundscape. She's like, I want you, I want mm-hmm. you. And then she gets up and she goes, You'll never. And it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> All that romanticism <laughs> is out the window. Yep. <laughs> like it is so dark and dreary. And so, like I said, I think it's it's at least it's still humane. But I think this is definitely, like I said, I think it's his darkest movie, just from the standpoint of like there are no redemption for these characters. They literally are on like a figure eight highway. Essentially, mm-hmm. they are just going in circles, and there is no way out. Right. Well, and I think like there, I mean, there's a lot of themes going on with like corruptibility mm-hmm. and um, I mean, of course, duality, because there's sort of like this doppelganger element that's going on. Which is there. another Lynchian hallmark for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He loves to play with that. But I, I, there's several times in the movie where like the, the mood is so strong that it was affecting the, um, I mean, just the, the point of them getting the, the videotapes and watching the videotapes together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, somebody's like watching their house. But the the section where the whoever's controlling the videotape goes into their house, walks down their hallway and shows them like sleeping in their bed yeah. is like so disturbing on so many levels. Like w- what a terrifying image of, of like the ultimate act of voyeurism of somebody coming into your home while you are at your most vulnerable and just videotaping you and like yeah. you're completely unaware of it. it like the idea of it is so fucking scary that it, it hangs like this looming dread over I mean at least the rest of the scenes with uh, Bill Pullman is that like there's this sort of um, almost omnipresent threat of like 
who is this person? How did they get access to the house? Why are they doing this? And um, like you said, when he meets the guy at the party, who's like, I'm in your house right now while we are talking and you can call and he does call him on a phone and the guy is in mm -hmm. his house and he's having a conversation with him where they're able to answer each other give so my phone very, back to me <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and he like asks a question he like asks him a question and he's like ask ask the other me and so then he has to say it into the phone to ask the other guy so like th this again this dream logic sort of stretches it out i like further where it's already nightmarish, but now it's taking on an even more like literal nightmare quality of there's something supernatural going on here. How much of this is real? How much of this is imagined? Um, yes. And so, I mean, it all sort of culminates in this, you know, the slaying of his wife that again, he blacks out and he, he doesn't remember any of it. And so it the movie sort of like takes you on this sort of journey of introducing this character and putting in this this nightmare scenario situation having the murder happen you don't know like what is going on really but like you're sort of getting settled into this one mood and then the sort of flip that just happens and it sort of pulls the rug out from from under you in a, in a number of different ways but i love sort of the the guard is going through and doing his count Mm -hmm. of the cells and opens the door and he has a reaction of like oh like jesus christ like oh, oh my god like something like that and runs away and like i sort of thought like he had killed himself maybe yeah. um i'm assuming that's what was trying to be implied but yes. like they don't show in the cell he just like has this reaction and you're just like oh like he killed himself they show him looking up at the bars and across the roof of his cell and of, or, of course i thought nightmare in elm street um yeah. oh yeah yeah when the kid gets Rod, hanged by yeah. the bars yeah yeah, yeah. um so th that's immediately what i thought of and then just the reveal of like no he didn't kill himself he body swapped with a completely different person and we have no idea why or what happened or what happened to bill Pullman's character and we still it's don't just like yeah and and the other thing even further what i love about the movie is like because we don't see that happen in full we just see like little snippets and and flash cutaways to it just right. as we did for that and similarly um you know uh, uh pete's parents saw that happen to him because he keeps asking what happened that night and they're like it was horrible like the most horrible thing we've ever witnessed we don't even want to talk about it sort mm -hmm. of thing so it's like we never really get a sense all we know is that like it happened and it's like weird like body snatchers or maybe even more like the flies like deterioration like situation we don't mm -hmm. see it and it's actually all the better for it and we also don't know you know because bill pullman does come back into play in this final like leg of the movie but we don't even know what happens to his character in the interim when we're following uh pete's journey which mm -hmm. is also interesting all we know is like the wires are getting crossed somewhere along the line because there's a scene where pete's driving in a car and he's listening to the radio and his and and uh bill pullman's saxophone number that is playing in the car uh similarly when they go to the uh, the porn maker to Andy, played by Michael Massey. When they go, to, um, him and uh, Alice have this sort of like plan to rob his money and get away. Um, right. And that's the other thing too. It's like this movie is already ambiguous to the nature of what's happening to the characters, and then you throw in an unreliable narrator because Alice is telling Pete all these things, but you don't necessarily by the end you don't know 
what she said whether it's true or not like mm -hmm. the scenario she says of like oh this is how i got in with mr eddie when they make her do like that strip number like yes mm -hmm. we see that as an audience but it's like did that actually happen like are you just feeding this story to pete to get him to do what you right. want him to do so you already throw that in so it makes it like more messy but they go to the porn stars or porn director's house excuse me which is like the most gnarly death sequence in the movie never look at a i've never looked at a glass table the same way again like <laughs> since i've seen this movie like i think of uh <laughs> i think of that scene in game night when the glass tables aren't breaking and oh, yeah. they're like oh glass tables are acting weird tonight and that's like now it's like i got crosswired here because like no right. they don't break you just slice your fucking head yeah in the center of it but he goes and he finds a picture and then there's a picture that's got uh, him and it's got Robert Loggia and it's got both Patricia Arquette's in the picture and mm -hmm. he's like like and so it's like that at the point he's starting to have headaches and nosebleeds just like Bill Pullman did so it's like his sort of fabric of reality is starting to unravel in that moment and as he's like you know wavering we find out there's a hotel there's a lost highway hotel and his like memories are getting intertwined because we think that's at the porn director's house but then we find out this is actually in the middle of god knows where Right. Well, and, and because like, and they're playing with like spatially uh, some weird yes. games because when he's at the porn stars, uh, I'm saying it too, the porn director's house <laughs> yes. after they've killed him, uh, he's starting to get a headache and a nosebleed. And he's like, what, like, where's the bathroom? And she says, oh, you know, it's upstairs to the left. And he goes upstairs and then he's in the hallway of the Lost Highway Hotel um and like going up and down and, and like he opens like a, one, of the, one of the room doors and Patricia Arquette's character is in there um having sex with somebody i i don't remember right now but it's sort of like this nightmare sequence that's splashed with red light mm -hmm. and she's basically like haunting him or teasing him it's and robert loja isn't it is it robert loja yeah because there is a scene with robert loja yeah because then because when he reverses back to bill pullman he goes to that same hotel and uh, right. robert loja who is turns out is dick laurent in bill pullman's reality uh, is having sex with uh, Renee, which is the Patricia Arquette in his reality. Right. So I think that's what uh, Pete is seeing because his is starting to get intertwined with Bill Pullman's. And it's just like, it's just insane. And another thing we should note in these sequences as well, uh, I mean, it's great throughout. This is one of those movies where like, if you haven't seen it, it's one of those movies where the soundtrack was bigger than the movie itself. Mm -hmm. uh, most notably Nine Inch Nails is the perfect drug was written for this movie. Uh, but there's also great like soundtrack with Smashing Pumpkins, uh, David Bowie, Lou Reed, uh, Marilyn Manson, uh, who Marilyn Manson and Twiggy Ramirez make a brief cameo in one of the porno uh, movies shown. But there's two Rammstein tracks mm -hmm. and they slap when they get into that like hazy moment it's like yeah it's so good yeah um i last time i saw this movie prior to uh this rewatch i i feel very fortunate last time i saw this was on 35 millimeter at the sif egyptian during a david retrospective bar none one of the most gorgeous prints i've ever seen like it was phenomenal uh and so when that stereo kicks in it's just like yeah it's great it was great i bet yeah, and I, I mean, like, again, like the craft of the movie, like it, it all looks great, it all sounds great, and it plays to, I, I think, the the story itself is not straightforward, so I wouldn't want to see the, this type of movie, and I don't think this type of movie could be really made by somebody other than Lynch, like it's no. very much got all of his hallmarks, 
And it's it's um, such a strange movie because it's so tenuously walking this line that somebody else who doesn't understand this material, it would completely fall apart and be like, mm-hmm. like unwatchable. You wouldn't be able to follow anything that's going on. And the fact that you can come out of this movie being like, again, not able to really tie things together and not being able to explain things, but still find the movie enjoyable, I think it's just a testament to Lynch and his craft. Absolutely. It, he, he definitely has that sort of element where he like, because he often goes off the rails because he that's just not him as an artist like he doesn't view I mean, he started as a painter and he views it his films just like abstract paintings where it's like the the the, the imaginary the imagination is boundless I don't, i'm not going to be constructed by like a traditional narrative you can either you can come with me or you can not um right. and so it's it really it's definitely a, your mileage may vary and like i said even even as he works in the abstract, he usually has a, a solid emotional core. And I don't think this movie has that. And so I think maybe that might have been like the crux of the what, um, in addition to it being really impenetrable in that David Lynch way, is that it's, it's, it is as entertaining as it is, as great as the soundtrack is, as great as all the technical elements, great as the performances is, this movie is bleak by the end of it. And so it, it really is, like you said, even amongst people such as myself who are massive David Lynch fans, um are are torn over this one um and i don't feel it even has had that um i mean it's beloved by a fair amount of people but i feel like this hasn't even gotten that sort of critical um like reassessment the way that something like twin peaks firewalk with me has or the way that i think even wild at heart has had that to a certain extent um i mean Wild at heart won the palm de or it can back in 1990 so it's like it already had some sort of like going into it um but i feel like lost highway is still a little bit as far as like david lynch e movies um like so if you're excluding dune and the short story like as far as his movies i'd say this is still still maybe kind of the bastard stepchild um but i i think it's great um but i understand (laughs) i understand if if anyone isn't into it um but i'm i'm really glad you liked it and so this i think this makes it a unique choice in our what uh because we were more or less both like incredibly positive on the movie but i i do you know I, i wanted to talk about the David Lynch movie that I feel like doesn't get quite as much love and also it fits well enough with the other two movies we discussed uh, mm-hmm. because there's a lot of shape shifting and time shifting and all kinds of crazy yeah. stuff so well and the same with like Donnie Darko it's it's time travel element is pretty ambiguous you don't know exactly if time travel is actually what's happening or if right. it's just a date um, but then I think with the other two, um, not so much with Bill Pullman's character, uh, but with uh, uh, Pete, uh, played by uh, Balthazar Getty, um, his character is um, like a younger guy who's uh, more or less sort of an innocent who gets then introduced halfway through the movie and he's slowly corrupted by Kasharkov's character. And he's sort of going through the same throes of a, like, learning about himself, learning about the world, trying to understand what love is. And like, he's sort of torn between two different worlds where like he has a girlfriend and, and yes. they have sex. Yeah. And of course he falls in love with Patricia Arquette's character who's more or less using her, using him for her own gains, uh, her own immoral uh, machinations that she has in, in place. And so there, there's a bit going on. I, I, I mean, of course it's not a one-to-one scenario but i think that's why it's a what in, in this sense it's not trying to be anything like that uh yeah. it it's very much taking a lot of themes and moods that are identifiable from more donnie darko than from butterfly effect i think but 
just taking those and using those as its paint instead of trying to construct a narrative in that same world. And so, I mean, it's again, with Lynch, even if you're not along for the ride, it's at least extremely interesting. Absolutely. And it's quite a ride it is. And honestly, Chris, I don't think I could pretty, pretty put the nail on the head on these movies uh, as well as you did right there. So I think that might be a, a good spot to, to start to, to wind this episode down. Um, as we discussed, uh, I guess with Donnie Darko, Donnie Darko is readily available pretty much everywhere. Um, like I said, there's a great new 4K restoration out, but it is available across pretty much every digital platform. Uh, same with both the Butterfly Effect. Uh, if you want to check it out, we don't recommend it, but it is available widely and Lost Highway as well. Um, mm -hmm. There's a Blu-ray out by Kino Lorber, uh, and then it's also available to rent on most digital platforms as well. Um, but uh, this is about the time we sign out. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, as always. And we have to thank the North Bend Film Festival. Thank you so much for having us out. Uh, it was, this was a really great time. Um, in the meantime, if you are new to our show, uh, you can find all episodes of this show on our website at thegoodbadwhat.com. And you can subscribe to us on pretty much every podcatcher of choice, be it Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, we're on there. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thegoodbadwhat, or you could email us at thegoodthebadwhat at gmail.com. And our theme music comes from Paco, and our logo comes from Michelle Parcos. And Chris, where can more people follow you individually online if they so choose? If you so choose, you can find me on Twitter at THOCristo89 or on Letterboxd at C underscore THOM. And you can follow me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Riley90. That's R-Y-O-L-L-I-E 90. Thank you again. Thank you again to the North Best Film Festival for having us. And for anyone who's watching, we'll catch you on the next episode. Have a great time at the festival.